I came back. Um, welcome to Sierra Bible Church, if I haven't met you. My name is Jesse, and uh, yeah, I wasn't here last week. I, um, I was asked to speak at a, a men's conference. Uh, um, they called it a man camp, and uh, three different churches got together, and I got to be the, the speaker and spoke several times for them over the weekend last weekend, and so it was a good, um, a good time. And uh, we're going to be in James this morning, so if, uh, if you have your Bible, please turn to the book of James. And then if you want to use the Bible, you didn't bring yours, or, or you don't want to use your fake Bible on your phone, you just raise your hand, and, and one of the ushers will gladly hand you one of our Bibles. And you're okay, man. You can sit down. I'll, yeah. Um, and then um, a couple things I just want to mention that are really neat. One is uh, a couple weeks ago, Brad Knoll and several volunteers went down to the uh, elementary school in Glenshire, delivered over 50 gift baskets to teachers with supplies in them. Um, it's just one of those things that we do uh, as a church to show Truckee that we love Truckee. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a, a, a part at the end of Jonah when we were studying Jonah, and in that particular passage at the end, Jesus, Jesus, um, Jonah ends the book of Jonah with this, it ends weird. It's one of the weirdest endings to any Bible, to any book in the Bible. And he simply says to Jonah, should I not care for that city who have 120,000 persons who don't know their left hand from their right hand and so much cattle? The end. Right? He's like, dude, shouldn't I care about all that beef? Is, you know, and, and, and what he's saying is, is that He's saying to Jonah, essentially, I care about the well-being of the city. I care about their salvation, and I care that the city is done well. Here's a good question to ask for Sierra Bible. Uh, if Sierra Bible was removed from Truckee, California, <clears throat> what, would the, what would the town of Truckee be like without our church? And if, it, if it's, they wouldn't notice, that's not a good thing. Uh, if they'd celebrate, that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the fact that we're here for the betterment of our community and, and, and we do things like this on occasion to just so in the name of Jesus, for the love of Jesus, that we love our town. And so we delivered these baskets and we got several cards back, several emails back. And one of the teachers said this. They said, to our friends of Sear Bible Church, just wow, I've never felt so supported by a group of people I don't even know. Generous, feeling blessed and grateful. Another, um, another one came through says, we appreciate your thoughtfulness. Um, another one, uh, the kind volunteers, a few other great things about the gift baskets. Another person said, I've never felt so loved. Uh, nothing, I think one of them said something along the lines of, no one's ever done anything really like this for us, and we're just really, really thankful. Uh, and so I just wanted to give Brad and his team a round of applause for doing an amazing job. And So... Um, those things are important for us. It's, it's one way that we're missionaries in our community. It's one way that we uh, um, love our community. And then, and then uh, a point of celebration and then also a point of, of mourning, unfortunately. Um, yesterday, I, I helped move Ben and Arian into their new place in Florissant. They were living uh, with six of them in a place that was less than 1,000 square feet. So two parents, four little kids, and they purchased a place in Florissant. We moved them over there. Um, they hardly had anything uh, that we needed to move over, which is a complete lie. They had four trailers and uh, four truckloads, so uh, they moved quite a bit. Of, I don't, I, I like still don't know how they fit it all in their their house. It was like an m- amazing miracle, Jesus walking on water kind of thing, and um, and so they're celebrating a new home. 
which was just great. Ben leads our Awana program on Tuesdays, and it is just a tremendous blessing to those kids. Same with Arian. They're, they're just a great group of people and important to our church. So we celebrate with them. And then we have another family, um, Zach and Laura Osnes. They, um, they've been part of our church for a few years now. Laura helps lead a Bible study on Tuesdays. And in that Bible study on Tuesday mornings, there's almost 30 ladies that go to this Bible study. And what's really neat about it is several of those ladies are from our church and also other churches in the area. And it's just neat to see several people, you know, from different churches coming together, studying the Word of God and fellowshipping. So uh, that's a sales point for you ladies looking for a study during the day. But um, it's also just to let you know that she's, she's an amazing teacher. My wife has helped lead that, lead that as well. And it's a great Bible study. Well, last uh, week, well, this, I'm sorry, this week, uh, their home that they rent in um, Taladonna was struck by lightning and caught on fire and and did quite a bit of uh, damage to the home. Everything uh, in the house has smoke damage, so it's basically all completely unusable. All their clothing, cribs, uh, all of it totally not usable. They don't have a place to stay right now, uh, and so we just need to be praying for them. And they were here in the first service, and Zach has been a huge blessing for me. He used to be a, um, he used to be a clothing rep for Cool. Uh, the company, uh, the cool company, which is this T-shirt I'm wearing right now. I haven't purchased a T-shirt in like four years, and um, because he was, you know, as a sample guy, he gets rid of his samples and he just give me uh, his samples. And so I let him know when the fire went down. I said, "Hey, man, if you need any T-shirts, I know a guy because <laughs> um, we're the same size." And and I told him, I said, "And the good news is, is those T-shirts they don't smell like smoke, they just smell like manhood." And so, <laughs> if you need a T-shirt. Uh, let me know. Um, but be praying for them. I, they're actually, you know, they're they're in the thick of it. So even when I asked them this morning where they were at, they're because it, it just happened, like on Thursday, I think it was. Uh, they got on Wednesday, got back Friday, which was, and then it's the weekend, so they haven't communicated with insurance companies as clearly. And then tomorrow is a Monday, and it's a holiday, and all this other stuff. So they still don't know what they're gonna do. Uh, but they <clears throat> they are looking, quite possibly, for a place to live for the next three months. Uh, while their house gets uh, re- renovated and fixed up. So be praying for them. They're important to us, um, and we love them. And, and yeah, it just stinks when those kind of things happen. But how much better off are they to be part of a church family that, that can bless them and, and all of that? So um, with that said, as I said, we, we started James. We'll be in James for a little while. And um, we uh, have a tradition, if you're new, because we deeply love God's Word, and, and we want to show God uh, our appreciation for his word. And so we like to stand during the reading of scripture. So if you're visiting and you're able to this morning, would you please stand with me as we just read a few verses here? Chapter one, last week, uh, Wayne uh, did an amazing job preaching through verses nine through 15 in that uh, we're not tempted by God, we're tempted by our own desires. And verse 16 ties in with some of what we went through last week, and I'll show you how it does so, and then we'll progress further into the text this morning. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not sure if I made that clear. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Lord, we know that above all else, we don't need more opinions from sinful men. 
We don't need to hear more of someone's uh, own desires or agendas. Lord, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from the word of God, the words of God. And before us this morning, we have been honored to stand before your ancient text that has stood the test of time. Lord, it has stood through generation after generation, culture shift after culture shift, and yet it stands true to us that you and you alone are God and that you and you alone provide the way to salvation through the death of your son on the cross and through his resurrection from the grave three days later. We trust this morning that you would pierce through our hearts and teach us more of who you are and how good you are to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we were reminded of the reality that when trial and tribulation come, we cannot make God the author of such temptation and hardship. In verse 16 of this particular passage, after that truth being stated, James then tells the church, this man being the half-brother of Jesus Christ, who walked with Jesus, who was a pillar in the church, now tells us as the church, do not be deceived. Another way of translating this is don't be a sucker. (laughs) Don't get tricked. It literally means not to fall into error. It means don't go astray. Don't wander from the truth. Or another way to put it in light of what was read last week, don't blame God. Don't be deceived of these things. Deception is a trick of the devil. We have noticed this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, where literally it is Eve who says it was the serpent, Satan himself, who deceived me. Later, 1 Peter instructs the church to be sober-minded, to be watchful. For the adversary, the devil, the same serpent in Genesis 3, prowls around now like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And then in John 8, 44, Jesus himself shares the truth that Satan has no truth in him, that he is a liar, and that he is the father of lies. This is the reality that we stand in our culture as Christians, knowing that Satan is out to trick you from the truth. So he tells us in verse 16, do not be deceived. One of the clearest points of deception for you and I, in fact, is our own human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9. It's a great verse. It says the heart is deceitful, is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? One of the worst pieces of advice that you can give a young, young person is just follow your heart. Even for adults, we fall into that trap of falling into, well, I just, I'm just following my heart, following my heart. To, if it feels good, well, then it must be good. I have been a pastor long enough and also a Christian long enough to know that my heart has a tendency to lie to me. It is deceptive. It tells me things that are just simply not true and usually are filled with with self-absorption. Don't follow your heart, friends. Follow the word of God. We should be looking at the text. We should be looking at what God says to us as Christians so we're not deceived in thinking that God is the author of something that he isn't. In the context here, it's that God simply is not the author of your trials and your hardship. In fact, that reality is pointed out when he says it's your own desire that leads you into trouble. For men, typically, it's the idea of lust. 
It's then conceived in the mind. The mind then thinks it through a little bit, starts to act it out, and then it tells us in the text before us in the previous verses that eventually that that sin will bring death. Have you noticed that within sin, that it brings death? Not just a physical kind of death that we think of in eternal perspective, but when we sin against someone in relationship, the relationship decays just a little bit, or even more, very radically. One author says this about the heart. The heart is very sinful, very deceptive, and will trick you over and over again. Into what? Thinking that this TV show, or this pursuit of fame, or this perfect family, or this money will be more satisfying than Christ. Therefore, if you believe what I just said, you'll now be on a lifelong warfare to kill that over and over again, to take the sword of the Spirit and stick it. Every day, <clears throat> that's what life is, killing suicidal, deceitful desires that tell you this world is more satisfying than Jesus. You got to stick it with the sword every single day. I was talking with Zach after the service. After he had heard the message this morning and he said, you know, man, like I've been praying since we've lost basically everything in our home. What is it that God is teaching me? And he simply said, I think God may be reminding me that the things of this world are just a shell. That the material possessions that I own, the things that we've possessed for 10 years in our family, the gifts that I've purchased my child even before he was born are not nearly worth the treasure that is found in Jesus Christ. We are deceived in this world in thinking oftentimes that if we dive into the world's ways, it will bring us happiness and contentment when the reverse is actually the truth. That is why the Bible adds to this reality of not being deceived in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. He then adds to this reality, which ties into much of what Wayne shared last week. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. If you sow into material possessions and those things mean something to you when they are ripped away, you will reap the corruption that comes from that. He adds to that in Galatians. For what one for, I'm sorry, for the one who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit eternal life. And then he adds to it even further, do not grow weary in doing good. He's talking about spiritual investment, doing ministry as a Christian, loving people, serving those who are below you. This reality that we have to understand is that we can't be deceived. There's, there's a truth about God that Satan wants to take away from you. When something bad happens, it is easy for us to fall into the trap. Well, God, why did you make this happen? Why did you allow it to happen? James' instruction, it's not me. It's not God. It's sin. We live in a fallen world. Now, on the heels of that and sharing not to be deceived, he says to his brothers and sisters, he then goes on to share with us the goodness of God. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from where? From above. And then he shares this reality here that God is the God of the Father of lights, whom there is no shifting or variation of shadow. This is an interesting note for us to take in contrast to what was shared last week. God is constant. God is consistent. He is never changing. Now, with that said, we, on the other hand, are very inconsistent. We are shifting. 
We are moving. Our emotions do change. Our thoughts do change. We are the most bipolar of people ever, are we not? We're not stable. They say one of the healthiest things that you can do as a parent is to have both parents consistently present with their child. Both the father and the mother consistently raising them. Not that they are perfect parents. It's not that the perfection of parents needs to exist, which we all who are parents say, thank you, God. But it's the consistency. Likewise, they say those kids who struggle, especially in adulthood, that oftentimes one, if not both parents, have just simply not been present in the child's life. I've seen this in my own children, trying to figure out between both what they are doing to manipulate the situation when they get into trouble, as well as what is true. My oldest, for example, he's eight years old. Whenever I discipline him, he begins to get emotional, and I don't know where he's gotten this from. He begins to say, well, it's, Dad, it's because you're at work all the time. I go, what? I am here every day. Every dinner, every morning time, all that to be said, he, he's making this connection. Dad, I need you here. Whether he knows that to be really true or not, it is true. He needs a father who is consistent. The good news of the text here is that we have a good father where there is no variation, no shifting of shadow, no changing of him. And it shares with us that this perfect God, that there is no changing in him, that he is stable and consistent, and he gives us every good gift. He is, it says, the Father of lights. About the Father of lights, one commentator says, this was an ancient Jewish title for God, referring to him as the creator of the great giver of light in the form of the sun, the moon, and the stars. Unlike those sources of light, which are magnificent as they are, can nevertheless vary and will eventually fade. God's character, power, wisdom, and love have no variation or shifting of shadow. Or as the Bible adds to this reality of God's unchangingness, he does not change, Malachi 3, 6. 1 John 1, 5 says, this is the message we've heard from the beginning, that God is light, and there's no darkness of him in all. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In John 3, 19, it tells us that people love the dark, but whoever does what is true comes to the light of Jesus Christ. And Jesus' light is perfect and constant. Many theologians believe James is doing something interesting here. He's taking a knock against astrology itself. Those in that day who were worshiping the moon and the stars those, those things have light in them, but they are not the source of light. And if you look at the moon, we, where we live, we, we get a great view of the moon. comes from our bedroom and then to the front of the house. On some days, that moon is just magnificent. It is just beaming, and it is full, and it is beautiful. Wayne was telling me, was it last night, Wayne, you said? Or this morning when you first got up because you got up at 3 a.m. or whatever? There was just a sliver of the moon. See, the moon changes because it is not the sun. It is not the source of light. It reflects the light. In fact, the moon by itself is not beautiful at all. It just reflects it. But it's changing. Same with the stars. Some days you can see them. Some days that you, you cannot. They are changing and they are shifting. God, on the other hand, is the consistent source of light. He is unchanging. He is constant. He is stable. 
So as parents, as for our children, we let them know, I'm your dad and I'm unstable. <laughs> God, however, who is your true father, is stable. You want consistent forgiveness and grace? Go to God. You want consistent good discipline? Go to God. You want consistent good encouragement? Go to God. You want good, consistent understanding of who you are and what your identity is? Find it in Christ. Not in yourself, not in your culture, not in your parents. Isn't that true for some of us who still at 50 years of age are still devastated with our parental relationships? That we have forgotten that your mom was not good enough. Your dad was not good enough. They never were. This is the path to forgiveness. Accepting your parents for who they are. Loving them anyway. And knowing that those things that you feel hurt from are because you look to your parents to provide something that only God himself can give you. For some of you, that should be a deep healing bomb so you can reconcile. And you think some of you, I'm talking to the teenagers in the room. I'm not. <laughs> I'm talking to some of you who are a lot older than that. God is the great, consistent, life-bearing light source. And what James, in essence, is sort of sharing with us is that this, this reality of God's goodness, this truth of, of him being the light source is the way forward into life's hardships and temptations. It's a love for an unchanging God who gives great gifts. If you want to know how to get through something difficult, you can't look to the thing that reflects the light. More on that in a moment. You have to look to the one who is the light. So he's the great gift giver, this God, this unchanging, immutable God. There are two ways in which God is good in giving gifts. Two theological terms that are mentioned. One is what's called common grace or ordinary grace. I'll explain that in a minute. Another is what's called special grace or salvific grace. Common grace is the reality of this. Listen to what James says again. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, from the Father of lights. Now, if you remember, James has authored this letter with two major influences upon his life. The first one being the wisdom of the Proverbs and the Old Testament. The second one being the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' own words of what it looks like to live like a Christian. Listen to what Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, verse 45 states. He, speaking of God, makes his son the great light in space rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Speaking of common grace or ordinary grace, it's a way to describe that every human being, whether they are sinful or not, experiences goodness from God. The example from the Sermon on the Mount is God himself sharing who gets to enjoy the sunshine, the righteous and the wicked. It's been kind of a blessing the last few days, maybe not for some of you, but for me to just experience the smell of the rain. A reminder that, that God waters the earth to bring forth fruit, the, the smell that the rain brings. It's refreshing, especially after all that pollen is on the ground. Right? Just wash it away, Lord. God gives these great things to those who are not Christian as well as those who are. 
It's just a way to describe theologically that God is gracious even to those who don't deserve grace. He goes on and states this in the Sermon on the Mount, same passage. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Therefore, he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Note that word perfect in the Sermon of the Mount. It's also echoed seven times in James. Him pulling from, again, the great message from Jesus. What is he saying in essence? He says the rain, it falls on the just and the unjust. So does the sunshine. And then he gives this commandment to love your enemies. What is in God's nature here? The consistent nature of God is God even loves his enemies. Amen? God loves those who don't love him back. In the washing of the disciples' feet, Judas is included. God's nature is to love his enemies. Let me ask you as the church, remember, We stated when we started James, this is a book for our growth and our development and our maturation. We also mentioned that part of the reason we're studying this book is to prepare our church for more people who may not know Jesus to come to know Jesus. And when they do so, we have the ability to love them and disciple them. Do you love your enemies? See your Bible church. Do you love your enemies? Now, in some of your hearts and minds, when you're on a Sunday and the pastor says, love your enemies, for Jesus loves his enemies, we all say, amen. Yes, that's so true. Fox News comes on, someone states something about someone else, next thing you know, burn him. Kick him out of the country. He's not American. That's not loving your enemies. How about someone cuts you off on the freeway, somebody take something that is yours somebody steals from you what about when somebody gives you injustice when you know you clearly deserve justice when the boss says i'm going to give you a raise and then it never comes do you love your enemies come on can you just for the sake of just actually being christian admit you don't What am I saying? Part of Christianity is not to ask, ask pompous and, and to try to act like you have it all together. It's to be reminded once again that he is perfect. He's called us to perfection and we're on the sanctifying process of being perfect. The Bible says that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the reason there's no condemnation is because even though you don't do the things you know you should do, you still feel convicted that you're not doing them. You know down deep there's something in you that wants to love your enemies, but you're completely incapable of doing them without God's intervention and his help. There's another kind of instruction for us here that's beautiful, not only to love our enemies, but also the instruction that God actually wants you to enjoy these things that are called common graces. He doesn't want you to be a stuffy Christian. He wants you to be a joy-filled Christian. What do I mean by that? Part of common grace within its theology and doctrine includes the reality that God gives to all, both wicked and the righteous, good music, good art, good landscapes, good smells, and good memories. Anytime you stand on a veranda and you see the beautiful view before you, both the wicked and the righteous get to enjoy that view. For those of you who are meat eaters, there's nothing quite satisfying as a beautifully well-cooked For those of you that are vegetarians, I'm sure there's nothing quite like a beautifully prepared eggplant. (laughs) 
or pasta or whatever it is you eat. You know, all the vegetarians in the church here are so much more healthier than me, and I hate you for it, but <laughs> what is part of the commandment here and this reality that God gives these good gifts both to the righteous and the unrighteous? It's the command to go out and enjoy these gifts, to enjoy your life, to enjoy a good game, to enjoy the good weather that is before you. God is good. Enjoy that meal without conviction, without guilt. It's it's kind of a commandment for those of us who tend to be a little self-righteous to just lighten up a little bit. God's good. Good shows, good theater, all of these things the Bible says, if it's good, it's from God. The contrast, if it's bad, it's from sin. That was last week. He's encouraging us to understand who God is. So he gives us, as as the unrighteous, those who who don't believe in Jesus, even if you don't believe in him, that doesn't mean, and if you're here this morning and you don't believe in him, that doesn't mean he's still not going to be good to you. He's still going to be good to you. Those of you who've been saved long enough, you know that you don't deserve all the goodness that you get. Man, sometimes I look and I think about where we live, the church that we're a part of, the four healthy children that we have. I think, man, I don't deserve these things. You know there's a great tension in that, though, between, between not feel, feeling like you deserve them, but also knowing that he loves you enough that you don't need to feel guilty about enjoying them. Enjoy it. In addition to this theology, just to make note for those of you who enjoy these kind of things, not only does he care for us in creation, as I just mentioned, the, the sun rising on the evil and the sun rising on the righteous, he's also constantly active in restraining sin. Now that may seem radical to you. What do you mean? Their sin is rampant. Well, it is only by God's grace the world isn't filled with a bunch of Hitlers. He's holding it all back. And he gives us these human advancements, medical technology, and other things that, that help the lives of people. Common grace, God's good gifts to all people. But then this great consistent father of lights gives what's called special graces, salvific graces. One of those things was mentioned in verse 5 of chapter 1. If you don't have wisdom, ask of your father who gives wisdom. You and I as Christians have the ability to go before this great perfect God and request even more gifts. That's ridiculous. But we get to go to him anytime we want. In fact, later James will say you, you have not because you ask not. That's pretty amazing. Matthew 7, 7. Again, Sermon on the Mount. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil, deceitfully wicked within the heart, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You see what he's saying? He's making the contrast just as James is. 
you're tempted, you're evil, you're not perfect, and yet you're still capable of great things, how much more the one who is completely perfect and unchanging is able to give you? So many of us simply do not experience the beauty in the relationship with Jesus Christ that we have because of two reasons, in my opinion. One, according to the text, we don't ask. The other one, we're not obedient. We don't do the things that we know we should. But in addition to these salvific graces, not only is the ability to ask one of those great gifts, so is this Holy Spirit. He tells us within this text here that he says, if you look here, verse 18, for of his own will, what did he do? Brought us forth. You can look at your Bible. It's okay. It's Sunday morning. Of his own will, he brought us forth. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. The same gift of God living in us that brings forgiveness, reconciliation to God, conviction of sin, and the ability to overcome sin. He then also shares with us here that God brought us forth out of his spirit, which is a gift of God, which is literally means, this brought forth literally means to give birth. The gift of being born again. This is incredible news because some of us need a fresh start this morning. And here's the other reality of what he's saying in regards to being born again. Remember, James is, is very pithy. There, there's quite a bit of statements of what you should and you shouldn't do. And he's also making it really clear within this passage, you can't do anything which was stated before it, and you can't do anything that's stated after it without becoming a new creature. Without becoming born again, you will not have the ability to be obedient. The Bible is really clear in regards to who we were before Christ. Does anyone remember who you were before Christ? I hope there's some of you in the room that, you know, you didn't just have it all good growing up, but you remember, man, you were a sinner. You were not a saint. Anybody? Anybody? I'll take anybody. Right? Yeah, let's all be open here. Let's actually be Christians again. Come on. Before Christ, we were what is described in the Bible in a state of hopelessness. Hopelessness. The, the Bible's description of us before Christ, it's not a happy one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, dead in your trespasses. Does anyone know what dead means? Dead. Okay, don't get this princess bride idea in your mind. Right? He's almost dead. No, man, he's dead. That dude is dead. You're mostly dead, sorry. There's, there's dead and there's mostly dead. No, no, no. The Bible's description of you spiritually, dead. Do you know how many things dead people can do? The description continually goes on. Ephesians chapter 3 I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, you are by nature children of wrath. John 3, you love darkness and not light. Ezekiel chapter 36, your heart is like stone. Romans chapter 8, unable to submit or please God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, you're not able to accept the gospel. John 6, you're unable to come to Christ and embrace him as Lord. In addition to that, 1 Corinthians 12, 3. And Romans 6, 17, Ephesians 2, 1, 2 Timothy chapter 2, you are a slave to sin and a slave to Satan. That is the description of before Christ. 
Ugh. This is important. I actually read an article this week that said the forgotten doctrine of sin. Which added to what I mentioned before here on Sundays, there are some places that simply refuse to spend a good chunk of time describing the total depravity that exists within humanity. We are a broken people and we are in need of a perfect, unchanging God. And without understanding that, you'll never find need to run into the arms of this perfect Christ. John Piper says it like this. Jesus' teaching about the new birth confronts us with our hopeless spiritual and moral and legal condition apart from God's regenerating grace. Before the new birth happens to us, we are spiritually dead. We are morally selfish and rebellious, and we are legally guilty before God's law and under his wrath. When Jesus tells us that we must be born again, he is telling us that our present condition is hopelessly unresponsive, corrupt, and guilty. Apart from amazing grace in our lives, we don't like to hear that about ourselves. So it is unsettling when Jesus tells us that we must, must, must be born again. Where Spurgeon says where there is no preaching of sin, there is no gospel preached. No kingdom of heaven no saving faith, no justification, no understanding that you don't have condemnation, there's no adoption into the family, and there's no eternal joy without being born again. And the incredible good news, for those of you who wonder, how how do I get this? He brought us forth. He does it. We have a God that intervenes into people's lives, and he changes them. He awakens them. He quickens them. Upon that quickening, we understand this is good news. Anyone who's been a Christian long enough understands that when you talk about sin, it's not punishing. It feels great. Thank you for telling me I can't do it. Oh, what a relief. Thank you for telling me that I'm evil. Thank you for telling me that I'm sin-filled. Thank you for telling me that I'm imperfect. Why? Because it's the reminder of what amazing grace is. We now have new birth and new creation in Christ. And he washes away that old man. And in in his eyes and his mind and in his heart, he doesn't see us as that anymore. Our identity is not in our actions. So after Christ, once we then are born again, it tells us he makes us alive. We're no longer in darkness. Our hearts are turned soft and no longer callous. And we're not following after sensual things. All of us must be born again. I like how Keller says it. It doesn't matter how many PhDs you have. It doesn't matter where you got your MBA. It doesn't matter in the world's understanding how able you are. To become a Christian means you start at the bottom. To start as a babe. You come in and you have to receive this new life and then you have to say, now what do I do next? You start with baby steps. It takes a terrific amount of humility. Just the idea of being born again, just the metaphor is a way of saying if you want this power, you have to see you need it and you have to start at the very bottom. Isn't that good? Come on, be honest. Some of you are like, some of you say that's good, but I've also seen people come to the Lord at 40 years old and say, man, I don't like feeling like a baby. Remember when we started the series, we used the quote from Spurgeon. So that way you couldn't get mad at me for it. 
He said, some of you have been Christians for 30, 40 years and you're still babies. You haven't grown up. It was the encouragement to grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. And what he's sharing here, though, for those of us who may be in the room, who are at an older age, who have not experienced the forgiveness of Christ, and we think to ourselves, what use would it be to coming to Jesus at my age? What use would it be to becoming more obedient at my age? What, what good, what use is that? It's humble and it's beautiful. It's what's necessary for salvation. It brings us back to that parental relationship to crawl literally like a baby and be held by the Messiah in his arms and for him to tell you it's okay. All of us are in need of this. One note in regards to this, what happens in the new birth is not an improvement of your, home, your old human nature, but the creation of a new human nature. A nature that is really you and is forgiven and cleansed, and a nature that is really new and is being formed by the indwelling Spirit of God. Do you know why this is important? Because Christianity is not self-help, my friends. Church is not about making you a better person. It's about making you a new person. But we don't have 10 steps here. Just so you know, you're not going to find on our website five ways to improve your Christian life. Because there's only one. Fall in love with Jesus. That's your step. <laughs> How do I become a better person? I, I, I don't have the answer for you. I just know you need to be a new person. Your old self is decaying. The new self, which is alive, is becoming more and more alive. And I can feel that within me, man. I helped Ben Lynn move, like I said, all of his stuff yesterday. I'm, I'm up here a little sore this morning. My body, with every passing year, does not recover like it did. And some of you are older than me, you're like, yeah, you just wait. <laughs> but inside, inside, though, there's something that's improving every day. There's a quickening, almost, almost like, like this body, as is, is weird as it may sound, but this body is almost, the physical body is longing and yearning for the grave, and the spiritual body is longing and yearning for heaven itself. And you can just feel this rending within yourself. It's not about becoming a better person. It's about falling more in love with Christ and experiencing that goodness of what it is to be in a right relationship with God. That's what brings you peace. It brings you peace because you're no longer at war with him. And the Bible is really clear that before coming to Jesus Christ, you're at war with God. You're at enmity, it says. You're just bouncing against the eternal, man. And some of you are in this room, and, and as it says in Scripture, you're just kicking against the goads, the sharp pieces that the cattle would kick back on to like remind them not to kick. And some of those cattle would be really, really stubborn. They just keep kicking. They just keep cutting up their legs and beating themselves up. And some of you have been Christians long enough, and you're just kicking against the goads. You're just fighting God with stuff. And you're not being humble, and you're not being teachable. And all, all those, some of you, not everybody, but some of you. And this is this encouragement, man. You run to the Lord. Get, stop, stop fighting. Stop wrestling. Stop being so filled with angst and anxiety and depression. And come to him. And submit to him and find out what it really means to be fully known and fully loved. All of this to be said, we conclude with this. These things come from the Father of lights. And there's no fading. There's no shadow. And, and here's the encouragement of what he's essentially trying to say to us. 
He's trying to say, listen, all of those things that are good gifts, food, a good glass of wine, good clothing, all of those things that are enjoyable in life, he's saying enjoy them, but don't, don't look at them as if they're the light. They're not. They reflect the light. Have you ever walked into a room and you, you, a certain smell comes across your nose and it just takes you back? It takes you back to a memory. Every now and then, every now and then, I don't know why it doesn't happen all the time, but when I'll hug my wife and I'll smell her hair, my memory of dating goes back, like all the way back to when we first were dating. And all of a sudden, this memory's triggered in me of just what a beautiful moment that was. And same thing with a song. There's certain songs that comes on and just reminds you of this beautiful memory. But what's amazing about that is that memory, it's fading, just, just like the stars and just like the moon, it fades. It's a reminder not to worship those things, and make those things the ultimate things, but to make the light the ultimate things. Those things are to point us, those beautiful memories are to point us to God, the source of those things himself. And when we make the moon the ultimate thing, we never get to really enjoy the true beauty of the sun. Could you imagine going your whole life and going, man, that, that moon sure is so bright and so beautiful, and never actually seeing the sun. And then one day someone shows you the sun, and you go, whoa, I don't know what that thing is at night, but this thing... That is beautiful. It's that same thing. Within sin, we've kind of, we fall into this trap to like look at all the material goods and go, look at how beautiful it is. Look at how wonderful it is. And it is great, but it's just reflecting something deeper in you. You with me? I heard one pastor this week, he said, he said he heard a rendition of some special music that, he had heard years ago on, on a record. And he said, oh, afterwards he told his wife, he said, man, that, they just did a, they did a great job. It was beautiful music. He said, but do you remember when we went to the concert the, from the album and when we played the album? He's like, man, on the album, it just, the, the, the chords boomed and everything was so much more powerful. We went home and he dug up that album that, that reinvigorated that memory and he put it down on his record player and he said, well, that wasn't quite as amazing as I thought it was. Because in his mind, it was greater than the reality because it was attached to something even bigger. Right? The reason that that smell for my wife comes back isn't just to point me to how beautiful my wife is, which she is. It's to point me to the fact that God is way good to me and he gave me that gift of dating for a season and to be reminded that God gives good things to sinners and righteous alike. He's a good God to us. And this morning as the worship team comes up and... um. Any of my elders and pastors that are, are here, if you'd come up too. Um, I don't know if I have all of you guys here this morning, but um, I'm going to grab uh, John Howard. Would you come up and, and help out, man? And uh, uh, Dave, would you, would you be willing to serve communion, please? That would have been a big boom if he'd have fell down. <laughs> Ryan, yeah, thank you. Um, the last part of this, he says, he says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In the Old Testament, the first fruits were the best of the crop. When they were harvested, they would be an indicator of what the rest of the crop would be like. And what he's saying, he's saying it's, it's a call to discipleship and evangelism again. Hey, worship this God who is good. 
and be a first fruit of Christ. Love your enemies, be like him, and as you disciple people, you're, you're just the first crop of many to come. You know what Truckee needs more of? More sinners saved by grace, just like you. Uh, so as we take communion, they'll hand out the bread first, we'll pray and partake, um, and then we'll hand out the juice and partake after that. So uh, just take some time to contemplate. that exists materially that is good is to point to something that's even greater. Jesus actually said it this way as we partake communion. I am the bread of life. I am the living water. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we hold in our hands a kind of a material way of being reminded of what's spiritually true. Jesus himself feeds our soul, his body, one with us. And that on the cross, what we hold in our hands is a way for us to remember that his body was beaten on our behalf. That you and I will no longer, because we're, we believe in Jesus, that you and I will not take upon our own flesh the beating that we rightly deserve or the spiritual separation that we deserve because of our sin. That Jesus himself took the beating that we, we should have taken 
so that we could be connected with him at all times and in all places. And as we partake, let us remember the perfect gift that came from above, which was God himself, who gave God to his people. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us on the cross. Thank you, Lord, for providing yourself as the sacrifice needed that we could be reconciled back into your arms. In Jesus' name, amen. Partake. conversation I had this week with a friend and he's uh, a believer and his wife has been struggling with uh, Christianity and questioning it and he said to me he said you know man my wife like she she says she just has this problem with the message that you know you can mess up and you can do things wrong and then you just ask for forgiveness and you just move on like there's no price to pay there's no 
no like restitution like i don't understand that and and having issue with that in her mind like thinking of justice you know and sometimes i think in an entitled culture like on the other spectrum on the other end of the the spectrum the um well you know we deserve good things in america that's why we came to america it's what makes america great you know we we deserve the best food and the best this and the best that um and sometimes in salvation, we bring that into our minds. Like, we, we forget that even though salvation is free for you, it costs God something at an amazing, an amazing price, the death of his only begotten son. And you hold in your hands another physical representation of God's own blood, sinless and perfect. If the body has not blood, the body doesn't have life. And within it, Jesus gives up his life and covers us with that spiritually that we would have life. He loses his life so we can gain a new life. And the reality of that message is that it cost, something, it cost God something. It wasn't free. That there is no just like just getting out of this. Either you take the punishment for your own sins, or Jesus takes them. And I am so thankful that Jesus intervened in my life and that he's intervened in so many of your lives to give us not a, not a free pass for him, but a free pass for us. And because that reality hits home, that's what makes us want to do all the stuff that's in here right, because we just can't believe he would do that for us. Can't believe you would shed your blood for me, Lord. I'm undeserving, but you give good gifts, so we thank you. Lord, thank you for your sinless blood shed for us. Thank you for um, the gospel message, which is the proclamation that any sinner, any person can be reconciled back to God and be in right relationship with you. I pray that this is a great encouragement to us. And not only is it a message that some will hear this morning and be saved, but for us it'll be something that encourages us to not grow weary in doing good. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. His body broken. Before we um, head out, I just want to say, first of all, I do deeply love our church. And, um, and if, you're, if you are visiting this morning, I don't say these things too often to our visitors, but we're, we are thankful that you're here. Um, and especially for some of you, that we're, we're in a new season where many people are starting to move to the area, um, which, you know, winter's coming. And so if you're not used to winter and you're a visitor, just know, first of all, we're praying for you if you're not used to what it's like. Um, you'll, you, you should be fine. Uh, <laughs> and we're here for you. Seriously, we're here for you. So um, that's part of it. The other part of it is, is um, for, those of you, for those of you who are here regularly, just, just be aware of that. There are people who are trying to get connected into new family and, new relationships so so step out of your boundary a little bit don't don't get stuck talking to your to the same friends that you love and enjoy but express that love and joy for some new people and then if you are a visitor please stop by the info booth get a free gift check out our community group wall ask one of myself questions all these guys are up here uh, in part for a reason they're they're leaders within the church uh, and they're a great resource for you people on the stage too so don't hesitate to ask questions we're glad you're here and um, want to help you get connected so with that let's uh Let's sing one last song uh, before we head home.